Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The phrase final word can refer to a couple different ideas. One is the last statement in a discussion or an argument, while the other is the ultimate decision about something. In many ways, Jesus embodies both ideas. Teaching team member Bob Cargo brings us this message entitled, The Greatness of Christ Jesus, Why Is He God's Final Word? which covers Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Thank you for joining us today. Today's a good day to talk about the greatness of Jesus, and that's what we're going to do. If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 1. It's one of the bigger books in the New Testament over toward the end. If you go to Revelation and turn left, you'll come to a big book called Hebrews. That's where we are today. And also in your bulletin is a little insert that will give you the outline of today's message. And whether you have a Bible or not, you may want to take that out. It'll help you to to follow along as we talk today about the greatness of Christ and how that, that connects to us. Uh, I've been around Perimeter Church off and on for about 25 years, and back at that time we used to talk about the idea that true fellowship, true Christian friendship happens at the intersection of two things and when we have conversations about both of those things. And those two things are first of all our humanity. What we share in common is our humanity. We're made in the image of God, but we are also broken. We're fallen. We have pains. We have uh, heartache. We have uh, sin. We have all these things of, of our brokenness and our incompleteness that we share in our experience of our humanity. And part of fellowship is sharing about our neediness, what's going on in our lives. But real fellowship happens when we talk not only about our humanity, but Christ's reality. When we see the reality of Christ intersect those needs and meet those needs, and then we're willing to talk with other people about this is not only the need of my heart, this is how I'm seeing Christ become engaging in my life. And that's real fellowship. But if you stop and think about it, if that's true fellowship, then the experience of this is true Christianity. If talking about it and sharing about it and and having it in common is real fellowship, then you have to have the experience before you have the conversation, right? (laughs) You have to to have Christ meeting you in those places of need before you have something to talk about. And that introduces us to this, this idea that really real Christianity really is bringing my humanity into the presence of Christ's reality. Lord, how are you real? How is it that who you are meets the need of my heart today? In the Old Testament, there were these three offices of Israel, prophet, priest, and king. Jesus fulfills all those. And another way of looking at our humanity and Christ's reality is to look at it this way. All of us here have a need for forgiveness. We have a need for mercy. How does Jesus bring that to us? He brings it to us by being our priest. He brought a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was himself. And he died in the place of sinners And that sacrifice takes away our sin and our guilt, okay? We also have a need for freedom. Freedom not defined as the license to do whatever we want to, but freedom defined as the ability to do what we should do. Freedom defined as that capability to break free from those things that enslave us, those things that we know are not noble. And all of us wrestle with those kinds of enslavements. We have a need for freedom, and therefore we need Jesus as our king. 
Jesus is our king, reigns over us. We need him. I need him to reign over me and to defeat those things that are the enemy of my soul. But there's a third need. We often are not really aware of this need, but it's a deep need. And in fact, I would say it's a foundational need even before these other two. And that is we need truth. We need the truth about who God is. We need the truth about who we are. We need the truth about how to take our humanity into the presence of Christ. How does that even work and how does it operate? And therefore, we need Jesus as our prophet. We need him to be the one who will tell us the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. This is part of the beauty of Christianity, that God is a God of truth, and he has revealed that truth to us, and primarily, ultimately, he has revealed it to us through Jesus Christ. Back in the latter part of the 20th century, there was a Christian philosopher and writer and teacher by the name of Francis Schaeffer. He wrote a lot of tremendous books. One of the books he wrote is a book aptly entitled, He is There, Speaking of God. He is there and he is not silent. In other words, God has spoken. In that book, this is what Schaeffer says. Christianity's presupposition begins with a God who is there, who is the infinite personal God who has made man in his image. He's made man to be a verbalizer in the area of propositions in his horizontal communication to other men. Even secular anthropologists say that somehow or other, they do not know why, man is a verbalizer. You have something different in mankind than the rest of creation. The Bible says, and the Christian position says, I can tell you why that is. God is a personal infinite God. There has always been communication before the creation of all else in the Trinity. And God has made man in his own image. And part of making man in his own image is that man is a verbalizer. That stands in the unity of the Christian structure. In other words, not only is God there, God is a communicator of truth. And he has revealed that truth to us. And ultimately, in an ultimate final way, he's communicated that truth to us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis put it this way. You won't see it on the screen, but listen carefully. He said, I believe in Christianity, and this is a man who came out of atheism and agnosticism. I believe in Christianity as a man that, as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I love that. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only that I see it, but by it, I see everything else. In other words, when you come into touch with this truth of Christianity, the truth as defined by the great prophet Jesus, everything else starts making sense. It all connects. It all works. The sermon today really is for every one of us here. If you're here, it's for you. There are no exceptions, whether you're a seeker just beginning to investigate Christianity. If you've been following Jesus for 50 years, it doesn't matter. This sermon is for you, and this sermon is for me. There are three ways in which I think this sermon really connects with our lives. First of all, it connects with my lack of direction and meaning. We all wrestle with that, don't we, sometimes? What do I do? Where do I go in my life? How do I find some meaning to be squeezed into my life right now? Secondly, my anxieties and my fears, the people that know you best know what those are. They're deep down inside. And thirdly, my weak motivation for worship. I should be a worshiper, but I'm not. These three needs connect with the prayer requests that came through one of our Keeping in Touch panels last week. Every Tuesday, our staff gathers to pray for the prayer requests that you write down in the Keeping in Touch panel that's in your bulletin. This last Tuesday, I saw one that said this, 
Please pray that our family will see Jesus in this current storm. They didn't define what that storm is in their lives. Please pray that our family will see Jesus in this current storm and surrender everything to him. Control, fears, disappointments, burdens, that each of us would fall into a deeper relationship with Christ. Do you see how that connects with this? I don't know what storm this family is going through, and I don't know what storm you're going through right now or what storm you're about to go through, but I know the storm that I'm going through, and I know that my greatest and deepest need in relation to my storm is not to figure out three things to do next week. My greatest need is to see Jesus clearly, because when I see him clearly, he puts everything else into perspective. The book of Hebrews is a book about Jesus. The New Testament letter of Hebrews was a letter written by an author, we're not even sure who, maybe the Apostle Paul, maybe someone else, but it was written to a group of Jewish followers of Jesus who were thinking about turning back from being followers of Jesus, reverting to Judaism. And so the theme of the book of Hebrews is simply this, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And in the first three chapters of Hebrews, it says Jesus is a better source of truth. He's first of all better than the angels. The word angel literally means messenger. And all the way through the Old Testament, the angels are the messengers of God. Hebrews says Jesus is better than the angels. And then it goes on to say Jesus is better than the prophets. He's even better than the best prophet of all. He's better than Moses. Jesus is the ultimate source of truth, better than the angels, better than the prophets, better than any source of spiritual truth that you're looking to. Let me ask you, where do you look for spiritual truth? Do you sort of invent a religion that you sort of like, a little bit from this one, a little bit from that one, a little bit from the other, and mix it all together? That is the American way of doing religion these days, you know. Ultimately, it says, I am my own authority. I'm going to make up my own religion as I go. It's a really bad way to go about it, I think. Jesus is God's final word. Not final chronologically. The apostles came after Jesus, but they merely represented Jesus. But he is God's final word authoritatively. Jesus speaks the last word. Jesus speaks the ultimate word because Jesus is God the Son. This passage today takes us deeper into the why. Why is Jesus the final word of God? And this passage is going to tell us why he should have the last word in the way I live my life and the way you live yours. It's going to tell us why he is the answer to our anxieties and our fears. It's going to tell us why he can give us direction and meaning. It's going to tell us why he can set us free to be the worshipers God made us to be. Today in this passage, we want to see the greatness of Jesus in three ways. We want to see his position, his person, and his power. His position, his person, and his power. His position, his person, and his power. And through all that, we want to see how Jesus and his reality can meet the needs of our humanity. To text today is the first three verses of this great book. Would you stand with me as we read Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. I'll be reading from the New International Version. And this is what God says through His Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. 
in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Oh Lord, we ask you today to show us Jesus and show us the greatness of of the Son of God as he relates to our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Athanasius was one of the early leaders of the early church living in Alexandria, Egypt in the second and third centuries AD. Athanasius tells the story of an early, another early church personality, a guy by the name of Anthony. Anthony was a man who had forsaken great riches to be a follower of Jesus, and he began to be a teacher of God's Word, and he led a group of his followers out into the desert to form a new community. Now, that's not a practice we would recommend. Forming a new community, yes. Going out in the desert to do it, no. That's not what we want to do. But that's what Anthony did. And Anthony became, however, such a famous teacher in this uh, hermit kind of lifestyle that after some of the Roman emperors became supposedly Christians, there were a couple of them that wrote to Anthony for advice. And the story goes, or the legend has it, that upon receiving one of those imperial letters, Anthony called together his followers held up the letter from the emperor of Rome and said, do not be astonished if an emperor writes to us, for he is but a man. But stand and wonder, stand and be in awe that God has spoken to us in his son. That's great advice. There's no greater, bigger communication than God to speak to us through his son. Let's look at the position, person, and power of God the son today. First of all, his position. The Bible teaches that God the Father has put God the Son into a position of authority. And that position of authority is described here in this passage in three ways. First of all, he is called the heir of all things. The heir of all things. Look again at verse 2. But in these last days God has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things. Now if you're the heir of all things, what are you? You're the owner of all things. The Bible says that God the Father has been so pleased with Jesus that he has put into Jesus the possession of all things. He is the heir of all things. Now, everything that we're going to talk about today will change your life if you get it, if you understand it, and if you believe it. But maybe nothing more than this point right here, that Jesus is the heir of all things. And the reason is because of what we see in Romans 8. Romans 8, 15 to 17. This is what Paul says. Don't miss it. The spirit you receive, that is the Holy Spirit, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again like you did before, just afraid of God, a sort of a slavery kind of relationship. Rather, the spirit you received has brought about your adoption to sonship. You've been adopted. For by him, by the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And then it says this, and if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. We're co-heirs with Christ. That's amazing. Ron Dunn was uh, years ago a pastor in the state of Texas. Ron Dunn used to tell the story of, of being at a carnival way back in the day when he took his children to a carnival. And this was at a time in which the way a carnival worked is that you would go at the entrance and you would buy this long row of tickets. And if you needed sort of 50 tickets to have fun through the day, you would buy 50 tickets and 
and there you would be able to have some fun. Well, the story goes that Ron Dunn bought enough tickets for all of his kids, and I think he had quite a number. And there at the beginning of the day, he starts handing out tickets to kids. And then he realizes there is one extra hand extended toward him. Then he has children. So he looks up and he's looking right into the, the face of a curly-headed kid that he's never seen before in his life. The kid is just standing there. And the kid points to one of Ron Dunn's sons and says, he told me you would give me tickets. <laughs> Turned out it was his son's friend. So Ron Dunn looked at his son and his son nodded. And Ron Dunn handed over all the tickets that he needed. So that's the way it is with Jesus for us. Uh, Jesus looks to the Father and points to us and says, give him what he needs. He's with me. He's with me. See, that's the the part that's mind-boggling. Jesus is the heir of all things, but when we're adopted, somehow we are made heirs of all things. So that someday when Jesus comes back, we're going to be ruling and reigning with him. And even now, we have access to all that we need. Jesus is heir of all things. Secondly, this passage says that Jesus, in fact, is the creator of all things. Yes, the Father created, but he did it through the agency of the Son. It says in verse 2, through whom, that is Jesus, through whom God made the universe. John's gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, and we're talking today about Jesus being the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through him, all things came into being. Without him, nothing came into being that did come into being. Jesus is the creator of all things. When you look up into a beautiful summer sky away from the city, and you see all those stars, think to yourself, Jesus made all that. When you look at the power of the ocean and the beauty of the ocean, think to yourself, Jesus made that. When you see the majesty of the mountains, and they're breathtaking, and how huge they are, and beautiful they are, think to yourself, Jesus made that. If you were to look through a microscope and see things that are absolutely amazing, you could never see them with the naked eye. Think to yourself, Jesus made that. Literally here in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus made the ages. That means not only did he make everything we see in this current and present age, he made everything that existed in the age before. When there was only the Godhead and the angelic beings and no earth at all, Jesus made all of that. And someday when Jesus comes back again, what is Jesus going to do? Jesus said, behold, I make all things new. It will be Jesus who creates the new heavens and the new earth. He's going to be the creator of all that too. He's the creator of the ages. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. And thirdly, we see his position here that he is the ruler of all things. The ruler. Notice what it says in verse 3, especially at the end. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He provided purification for sins, what happened? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, to sit at the right hand of of majesty back in ancient cultures, everybody knew what it meant. It meant this was the position of power. This was the position of ruling And so what does it say about Jesus here? He's seated at the right hand of the majesty, at the right hand of the Father. When Joseph was sold into slavery, that Old Testament story, by his brothers, and he was taken down into Egypt through a most amazing set of circumstances and actions, Joseph rises from being a slave to being the second in command. And how is it described? 
it is described that he is at the right hand of Pharaoh. What did that mean? He's ruling for Pharaoh. He's the CEO. And here's the amazing part of the story of Christianity. One of the amazing parts. (laughs) That this Jesus born in Bethlehem and raised in this poor little town called Nazareth, this Jesus rules the universe. This Jesus, this itinerant preacher who was hated by the Jews and ignored by the Romans, he rules the universe. This outcast, this outlaw who was crucified on a Roman cross and died an excruciating and disgusting death, this same Jesus rules the universe precisely because he submitted himself to that cross. That's why he rules and reigns. This Jesus, who nobody else would pay attention to, this Jesus, this humble Jewish man, he rules and reigns over the universe. Now let me ask you today, what is your need? What's the need of your soul? What's the need of your heart? What's your need today? What is your need tomorrow? Well, let me tell you, if you belong to Jesus... You belong to the one to whom belongs the whole universe. Will you have what you need? You bet you will. What are you nervous about? What are you anxious about? Why so afraid? You belong to the ruler, the creator, the heir of all things. And he's going to promise to take care of you. That's the position of Jesus. And that's why he speaks God's final word. Secondly today, we need to see not only his position, that he's the heir, the creator, the ruler of all things. Secondly, in this passage, uh, more deeply though, we won't spend as much time on it, we see his person. Who is Jesus in his person? Let me give you an illustration about the difference between position and person. I have a number of different positions in my life. I am the director of church planting for Perimeter Church. I'm a member of our teaching team. Currently, I'm the director of the North Georgia Church Planting Network. I am the husband of Margaret Ann Ruff Cargo. I'm the father of Hayes Cargo and Missy and Eason and Callie Cargo. I'm the father-in-law of Sally Cargo. Those are positions I have, but none of those things define the essence of who I am. The essence of who I am is that I'm a human being, I'm a man made in the image of God, and I'm a redeemed child of God. That is who I will be forever. That's who I am. So likewise, this passage has talked about Jesus' position, but now it goes deeper. Now it tells us who he is in his person. Look at verse 3, it says this, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of of his being. Who is he in his person? First of all, this, he is the radiance of God's glory. If you haven't read Randy Pope's book called The Answer, you need to read it. Especially if you're skeptical about Christianity, if you're investigating Christianity, if you want to know more about it in the process of hopefully coming to believe it, you need to read The Answer. And in The Answer, Randy talks about the story of glory. When you understand the idea of glory, a lot of things start falling into place. God's glory is his brightness, his splendor, his radiance, his majesty. In the Old Testament, when when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, it says that the glory of God, the Hebrew word is Shekinah, the glory of God came and rested on Mount Sinai. When Moses would go into the tent of meeting and he would talk to, to, to God face to face, the Shekinah glory of God would come to that tent of meeting and come to the tabernacle. 
Well, the Bible here says in Hebrews something that sounds redundant, but it's redundancy for a reason. It says that Jesus is the shining of God's radiance. If you understand the Hebrew words there, it would be like saying, Jesus is the shining of God's shining. Or Jesus is the radiance of God's radiance. Jesus is the brightness of God's brightness. The way one commentator put it was that Jesus is to God as light is to shining. Now, what's the difference between light and shining? I don't know that there's any difference. (laughs) But Jesus is to God as light is to shining. It's a powerful way of saying that Jesus is God incarnate. Not only is he the radiance of God's glory, but Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. The exact representation of his being. Now, you and I are very accustomed to seeing representations of people's appearances. We live in a world that is full of what Facebook, Instagram, photos. We're like addicted to seeing images of ourselves and of other people. And that's wonderful. We're also very accustomed in our culture of hearing digitized representations of people's voices. We hear voicemails all the time. We hear recordings all the time. We see video all the time in which we're hearing and not only seeing. Well, the Bible says here that Jesus is not just the image of God's appearance, not just a representation of his voice, that Jesus is the exact representation of what? Of his very being, of his very essence. Now, how do you represent someone's essence without being of the same essence? The answer is you can't. In fact, we have no analogies and no illustrations of this in our world because there's nothing like it. But this is a powerful way of saying Jesus is God incarnate. Now, let me ask you again today, what is your need? What is your need? Do you have a need for meaning and purpose? Then look to Jesus. Do you have a need for something that will take care of this fear and anxiety that has started gripping your life, then look to Jesus. Do you have a need for greater motivation to worship? Then look to Jesus. Whatever it is that you're wrestling with, yes, there are things that maybe God is calling you to do, but the answer that the gospel gives you is this. It is found in the greatness of Jesus. Do you see how this passage describes his greatness? His position is one that he's heir, creator, ruler of all things. In his person, he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact image of God's very being. And thirdly, we see here his power. Not only his position, not only his person, but thirdly, his power. Notice how we see his power. His power is seen in creation. It says he sustains all things by the power of his word. So not only has he made it, he sustains it. He speaks it into sustained existence. Since we talked a lot about that, let's zero in on the other part. We see his power also in redemption. It says he made purification for sins. Let me tell you what I believe. I believe it took more power of God to take care of our sins than it did to create the universe. How big is the universe? Nobody knows. How powerful does God have to be to create it and hold it in place? Absolutely mind-boggling. But the power of God it takes to bring purification for my sins, the power of God needed to bring purification for your sins is a greater and stronger power than the power it took of God to create the universe. How did he make purification for our sins? He did it through the work of his son. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what we call the gospel, the good news. Jesus came and lived a perfect life that I can't live representing me and in my place he was perfectly obedient to every one of God's ten commandments 
for his whole life never disobeying. And he lived the life I needed to live, and he lived it in my place. But not only that, he died in my place. The death that I deserved to die, bearing the wrath of God, he died for me. It was a substitutionary death, vicariously dying in my place. It was an atoning death, turning aside the wrath of God and the displeasure of God that I deserve. And it was a redemptive death. It brings healing to me. He lived the life I needed to live. He died the death I should have died. But not only that, he was raised to newness of life so that the first two have power. The Bible says in Romans 1 that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And the book of Hebrews paints this picture. That he is our priest, has made the sacrifice for our sins, but now he has been raised. And now he stands before the Father forever to plead the merits of what he has done. That's the power of his resurrection. He always lives for us. And in living for us always, he is always pleading his life and his death. His life and his death. And that means though I'm guilty of sin again today, sins that I've wrestled with my whole life, he comes pleading again the death of his own death on my behalf. So that when Bob Cargo blows it again in 2014, Jesus will stand as my representative and say to the Father, I know he's messed up again. I know he's blown it again. But look, I died for that sin. I lived the life he couldn't live. I've been raised for him. And he points back to the good news of that gospel. See, the good news of the good news is that it takes care of the bad news. It takes care of the bad news of our condemnation and the bad news of our enslavement and the bad news of our brokenness. And it is the answer to those things. In all of his power, he has poured out his power and the purification for our sins so that we have access to him. There's another reason that that is good news. That is good news because now we don't have to be in denial about our sin. We don't have to act like there's nothing wrong. We don't have to pretend that there's not a problem. You know, sometimes for some of us, it's, it's this idea of owning up to what's wrong in our lives or being honest about it. It reminds me of the story I heard secondhand from an African missionary many years ago. The story goes that this little African boy had picked a group of, of, of a bunch of figs and he put these figs into a sack and he intended that night to eat these figs by candlelight when everybody else had gone to bed. So when people had gone to bed, he lit a candle there in his tent, and he got out the figs, and he got out the first fig, and there was a worm in it, so he threw it away. He got out another fig, and there was a worm in it, so he threw it away. And that happened with the third fig, and the fourth fig, and the fifth fig. So finally, he just blew out the candle and ate the rest of the figs. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit of how, how some of us are. You know, you know, blowing out the candle didn't make the worms disappear, Right? Pretending that the figs were okay didn't make the figs okay. But that's exactly the strategy that every one of us adopted sometime or another. I'm going to act like nothing's wrong. I'm going to whistle while I walk through the graveyard. I'm going to pretend I'm not as guilty as I am. I'm going to pretend I'm not enslaved to the things that I'm enslaved to. I'm going to pretend that I'm not as broken as I know that I really am. And the good news of the gospel is you don't have to keep pretending. The new good news of the gospel is you can admit, I'm guilty, and I'm broken, and I'm, I'm struggling with enslavement, 
But I look to Jesus to be the answer for every one of my sins. And when you turn from those sins and trust in him, you find that little by little, he starts changing you. He starts making all the difference in the world. He becomes your effective priest to take away your guilt. He becomes your king to set you free. But it starts with him being your prophet to tell you the truth. The prophet to tell you the truth. Here is the greatness of Jesus Christ. His position, he's the creator, the heir, the ruler of all things. His person, he is the radiance of God's glory in the image of his being and in his power. It is seen in creation, but it is especially seen in redemption. The last question is this, so what? Three applications before we leave here today. First of all is this, he is to be the final word in how I live my life. Let me ask you, who rules your life? Who is the final word in how you do what you do, in what you do? Who's got the final authority? When I was in high school, I worked for my dad's carpenter. My dad was a home builder, and I worked one summer for his carpenter. And the crew that I worked with, we didn't lay block and we didn't lay brick. But when I watched the block layers and the brick masons, I was always amazed at how they used a plumb line to make sure that the wall was straight. Let me ask you, what's the plumb line of your life? We all need a plumb line. What's your plumb line? You have one whether you know it or not, whether you've analyzed it or not. You may think to yourself, I am my own plumb line. Really? With all of your faults, with all of your weaknesses, with your lack of ultimate knowledge? Uh, To steal a question from Dr. Phil, how's that working out for you? (laughs) How's that working for you to be your own plumb line? I don't know about you, but it's never worked very well for me. (laughs) It doesn't work very well for me to be the ruler of my own life, to be the one who decides what is true and what isn't. How in the world would I know enough to know that? We need a plumb line. And Jesus is that plumb line of truth. Secondly, the second application is he is sufficient for every one of my needs. I'm guilty and so are you. We have to look to Jesus. I'm weak and so are you. We have to look to Jesus. Sometimes I'm afraid and sometimes you are and we have to look to Jesus. Sometimes we all feel that we are held captive by a substance or a habit that we hate but we can't get rid of. We have to look to Jesus. Remember his position, his person, his power. And look to him to meet every one of your needs. I don't know what your need is today. But I know that in and through Jesus, God can answer that need. He's sufficient for my every need. He's to be the plumb line of my life. And thirdly, he is the object of my worship. He is the object of my worship. Don't be amazed if an emperor writes to you, but stand and wonder. Stand and be in awe that God has spoken to us by his son. Do you have a hard time being committed to worship? Maybe your Jesus is too small. But if Jesus becomes bigger... Your desire to worship will grow with that understanding. And worshiping here with the people of God and worshiping every day alone with Jesus will become more and more powerful because Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Does that make sense? I hope it does. A big Jesus will lead to deep worship. It always works that way. My friends, this is the greatness of Christ Jesus. This is why he is God's final word. And praise God, we can know what's true because Jesus, the prophet, 
the Son of God, has shown up to tell us what's true. Amen. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come not only to be our priest, not only to be our king, but you've come to be our prophet. Lord, may we start right there to thank you for what's true, to believe what's true, to believe what you've told us about ourselves, the good news and the bad news, and then to believe what you've told us about your power, to believe what you've told us about your justice and holiness, and that sure feels like bad news. But then also to believe what's good, to believe the good news of the grace and mercy of Jesus and how he's come to live and die and be raised from the dead for sinners. Convince us in our hearts today of that good news. And may we always live our lives under the authority of the prophet, the Lord Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.